happens when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul is going to be talking about the whole issue of marriage and singleness and really finding contentment there. Um, it's not always the case with marriages. I, um, I don't know if you know this couple. But um, I did just a short story. Uh, no, no, and folks, this is fictitious, so don't, don't worry, okay? But they went to Israel. And while they were in Israel, the lady passed away. Yeah, it's, it's a story, okay? So just relax, all right? It's okay. Always have to preface that. And so after she passed away, the, uh, the undertaker there in Israel met with her and said, hey, do I have a plan for you? For $750, your wife can be buried right here in the Holy Land. Or you can pay $15,000 to have the body transformed back, uh, taken back to the States and have her buried there. And without even thinking, he said, I'm having the body sent home to America. And the undertaker said, did you hear me, sir? $750 right here in the Holy Land. That's it. Nope. Body's going home. <clears throat> the undertaker said, okay, I mean, it's your, it's your call. But I have to ask you, why would you do that? Without even thinking, the man said, it was a simple decision. Having traveled around here in Israel, I heard that there, there was somebody 2,000 years ago that was buried and came out of the grave, and I'm not taking any chances. <laughs> Hey, it's just a story, okay? It's just a story. So, is that how we're supposed to live in our marriages? Just kind of gut it out. You know, you've heard the cynic say, marriage is not a word, it's a sentence. Yeah, it's terrible. It is terrible, okay? A whole host of those things we, we've seen in our day. And what I, what I love about this particular passage, um, Paul wants to talk about ultimately maintaining marital commitment, but not in just merely some kind of a gut, gutted out kind of a sense, but in a way that's, that's, that's connected to the gospel and connected to love. And so as we talk our way through this story, here's what I want to be careful of. I inevitably am going to raise some issues today where you're going to say, yeah, but what about... And I understand that. Some of you may be left with some questions. My situation isn't quite there, it's here. I understand that. I want you to feel free to follow up with any one of the pastors on, or elders or any other brothers or sisters here. You might want to just kind of share some of those things with and we'd be happy to explore that more. Paul's just going to be dealing with a couple issues. It has all kinds of ramifications for us. But it doesn't answer all our questions either. All right? So if, if this gets you thinking, feel free to come and talk to one of us uh, about it. Okay? All right. Get off of this one. Here we go. All right. So, so remember again, <clears throat> just, just to kind of talk our, our way through the book itself, of book, uh, the chapter. Paul is going to be talking about issues related to married couples primarily in the first 16 chapters. Not exclusively, but primarily. 
The section on singleness, I'm not going to talk about much this time. I'm just going to kind of leave that, leave that alone. Last week, we talked about chapter 7, verses 17 to 24, and how the gospel at its very core so shapes us that it allows us to stay in circumstance and situations that are often challenging, but allows us to do that with hope and purpose and meaning. That was last week. This week, we want to kind of look at how some of that stuff gets fleshed out in the area of the marital relationship. Next week is uh, Easter, so that'll be a special service. In two weeks, I want to come back and talk about the issue of singleness, okay? Primarily from 25 to 40, but dipping into this first section also today. Kind of make sense? So here's some of the questions. Uh, skip that one. Let's just jump right here. Here's something that's really strange. I, I hope... I, I always encourage people with this. When you read your Bible, don't ever be afraid to ask questions of the text. Because you're going to read things, you're going to say like, what in the world is that talking about? What is going on here? It's totally appropriate. Here, listen to how the first verse begins. Matter of fact, is John, oh, John, John's with us, okay. We had this question, you had this question last week, so here you are, okay. L listen to how Paul starts. I'm reading from the NIV <coughs> translation uh, today. I, I like the way it handles some of these passages. Okay. Now, for the, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Literally, what it says is, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But I think the NIV has it right that one of their questions they were bringing to Paul is, hey, Paul, I don't think we should have sex between men and women, period. It's good for a man and a woman not to have sex, period, including in their marriage. So Paul's going to have to handle that. But here's one of my questions when I read that. I just got done reading in the last chapter where you've got believers that are going around and sleeping with prostitutes and saying to themselves, hey, that's okay. Body, food was made for the body, the body for food, and God's going to destroy all of it. Boop. So you can, and I'm thinking to myself, do you mean in the same church, you've got people that are saying, I want to sleep around as much as I can, and Paul's saying, no, no, no. And you've got other people in the church that are saying, hey, I don't think we should even have sex in our marriages, period. And you're going like, how does that happen? My best guess is this, debated, all these things are debated. But one of the things, and, and, and it's not exactly our situation today, I get it, but I'm just telling you, in the ancient world, many people subscribe to this idea that your inner soul is good, but your body is evil. And so some people then said, well, so if your body is evil and your soul is good, you're only going to live for a short period of time and then the body's gone. Have at it, man. Do whatever. We call it hedonism. Do whatever you want. That's 1 Corinthians 6. But other people in antiquity said, well, if the soul is good and the body is evil, you should constantly say no to the body. All urges and desires. Asceticism. So, don't engage in any sex. Even if you're married. 
That's my guess. How in the same church, people could buy into that kind of philosophy. Now, here's my question for you. Is the body evil and the soul good? Bottom line is, folks, we're all depraved through and through, soul and body. And salvation comes and God forgives us and begins to change us. And one day we will stand in his presence. We will be reunited to our body because God prizes the body. The soul and the body will be reunited one day after our death, and we will be perfect people. Can you imagine that? Frankly, I have to, I have to tell you, sometimes I can't even imagine that. Doug Finkbeiner, Doug Finkbeiner will be perfect. He'll never lose his temper with anybody, ever. He'll never have a bad thought, ever. Now, I, it just Sometimes I often wonder if that's the greatest of all miracles in this whole salvation thing. You know what I mean? I'm forgiven, I'm being transformed, and I'm going to be perfect one day. I'm not there yet. And you too, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So our view is very different, but these people were coming with this mentality, and Paul's thinking, i got to help them with this. So you got some people that are saying in marriage, it's spiritual not to have sexual relationships. Matter of fact, some were even saying, hey, 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 we give ourselves over to prayer. And prayer is what's most important. That sex stuff, we don't need any of that. Apparently, that's what you got going on here. Listen to how Paul answers. It's powerful. And he says, ah, this is such a good text. My voice is feeling better, incidentally. That's a bad thing for you. Okay. (laughs) Paul says this in verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So Paul's saying, guys, if you mean it's good for for men and women not to have sex outside of the parameters of marriage, yes, you're right. But don't say that for within marriage. And it's like this, folks. A fire is great in a fireplace, isn't it? What happens when the fire gets outside of the fireplace? It's always destructive. But within God's intention, within that fireplace, it should burn regularly. It should burn intensely. It should burn sacrificially. That's basically what he's going to say in this passage. So Paul says, no, 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 don't, don't, don't go that way. Look at verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Folks, this is very important. Hear me here. In the ancient world, that would have been a shocker especially for men. Do you know that? It would be one thing in the ancient world for a man to say, I have authority over my wife's body. Oh man, you'd see stuff all over the place about that. But Paul says, if that's all you believe, you don't understand God's intentionality. When a man and a woman are married and they come together, God says there is such a one flesh relationship and such a sharing that there's mutuality in that entire relationship. 
A man cannot say, hey, I have authority over you. If he says that, he needs to realize something else. She can look right back at him and say, I have authority over you. Because what you have is mine. And switching sides, what you have is mine. Do you see? There's complete mutuality. Outside of marriage, sex is all about getting, isn't it? People don't watch pornography because they want to minister to others. Do they? Oh, wow. How can I minister to the glory of God? No. It's, he's treating that woman on that page or on that site like she's a slab of meat. It's wrong. It's sin. It's vile. In marriage, it's two people saying, how can I give myself to you? What pleases you? What do you like? What do you enjoy? And they're constantly looking at the other person and not, gimme, gimme, gimme. Sex in marriage is giving. It's not primarily getting. But in giving, you experience something that the world can never understand. And so there's no place for taking. There's rather, how can I give to you and how can I give to you? Total mutuality. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? See, you just had some Christians there in Corinth that were just saying, nah, period. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you're not understanding this. We, we live in, in, in a world of temptation and challenges. And God in his design has built this fireplace of giving and sacrifice and love and ministry. And, it, and in that process, there's an enjoyment that could never be copied anywhere else. So he calls us. He calls this couple to give. This is so fascinating. Look at verse 5. It, it would, apparently, people are, are, are hearing this kind of discussion by Paul and saying, okay, 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 I got it, Paul. But you know the spiritual is more important than the physical. Right? So look, look, look at what Paul says. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul says, um, if you decide, and these decisions are never to be made singly, this one flesh relationship is so mutual and so important and so giving back and forth. It's so critical that Paul says if one person says, okay, honey, nothing for the next three weeks. I'm on a special prayer journey with God. Paul says, you can only do that if your mate agrees. Those decisions have to be made together. Because you are one flesh, you are committed, you are sensitive. So even something like that has to be a mutual decision. Isn't that powerful, folks? They're asking this thing about, I guess no sex even in marriage. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Let me talk to you about what marital commitment entails. It is two people coming together. Look, folks, you can't do this if you're not communicating. Do you see that? These are two people talking and sharing 
back and forth, back and forth. How can I give? How can I give? And that reflects their entire relationship. It's not just in the sex. It's when they're making decisions. I'm going to do this. What do you think about that, honey? What do you think about that, honey? They're talking, talking, talking. That's what God wants for our marriages, folks. He doesn't want two people coming together that are just trying to get what they can get and demand things. He wants two people coming together to experience the joys and the wonder of God's intentions out of a spirit of giving sacrificially to the other person. Do you think that would change our marriages? It would change everything about our marriages. Paul says, you're asking these questions out here. I'm happy to answer them. But man, I'm going to the guts. This is what marital commitment's all about. This is what I want you to think about. You made a covenant with this woman. You made a covenant with this man. These are promises that need to be kept. A life that needs to be invested in. It's fascinating. Later in the chapter, when he's talking about singles, one of the things he says about married couples, he said, when a person marries, they're to be devoted to their mate. One of the questions they need to be asking is, how can I please you? That's part of the package. That's how it works. Okay, Paul. Got it. What else can you tell me? Look what he says in verses 6 to 9. And this one I'm going to go through rather quickly because I want to come back to it next week because it's focusing in on singles. So I, I want to go through it more quickly. He says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Here's what's fascinating to me. As we're working through this passage, there are times when Paul will say, look, look, this is only my advice and there's other extenuating circumstances and I get it. And there's other times in this chapter where he'll say, no. This is what you need to do. He, he does both in the chapter. So if you're married and you're saying, you know, I don't really know about the mutuality really giving to the other person. Paul's not giving us an option. He's saying, this is who you are. This is what it means to be Christ to your mate. To give. Anyway, look at what he says. This is by concession. I wish for seven that... All of you were as I am. Paul, if he's a typical Pharisee, most Pharisees, most men, they would, have, they would have gotten married. So my guess is Paul is probably a widower at this time. Okay? When did that happen? I don't know. But that's my guess. He's clearly single. My guess is he was once married and is now single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Now, folks, this is still his opinion. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And we'll come back to this more next week. But Paul, Paul is just basically saying, I want to talk to you about some of your questions. I'm now a widower. There's a lot of advantages to remaining single. But if people are struggling with that, they don't have self-control, they should remarry. Okay? That, that's really good gut sense, isn't it? Paul is a realist. He's able to say, 
I prefer this, but if you don't have this gift, you don't have self-control, do this. All the way through this, I'm going like, Paul, good work. Really nice. Where I want to do is get back to the next verse, verse verse 10, because Paul's back on marriage here. Look at what he says. (coughs) To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not the only one that ever talked about this. I'm going to tell you something in the area of marriage, Paul says. It's really important. It's not an option. But it doesn't start with me. It starts with Christ. A a wife must not separate from her husband. And one other thing by way of clarification, because sometimes we read this and I think we read America into it. Um, In our day, we often will talk about married, married couples, and we'll often talk about a time period of separation. Right? Where they're, they're still married, they're still, they're still, but they're not living together, but they're still married. And we, 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 people separate for a variety of reasons. I don't have, I understand we've talked about this. There's times when people are separated for a period of time because it's perhaps the best way to ultimately bring reconciliation. So I, I get that. So we talk about marriage, we talk about separation, and then we talk about divorce. When Paul talks here about separation, he's not talking about marriage, separation, then divorce. He's talking about marriage or divorce. So when you read separation, don't think, oh, they're just not together for a little bit, but they're still married. No, they're divorced, okay? So just keep that in mind as we read this so you don't get confused. Um, I give this command, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, if she divorces... She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. This is a really interesting one. (laughs) They all are. How many times have I said this is an interesting one? They're all the way through. So you have two believers that are married. And Paul says... Apart from sexual infidelity, which the Bible allows divorce and remarriage over, I get that, right? Jesus tells us that in Matthew 19, I get that. But, but Paul says, apart from that, if you have a married couple, believing couples together, they've made a covenant before God that they will stay together. But at some point in the marriage, they start thinking, she is a pain in the neck, or we are not compatible. I mean, people, people say all kinds of things. Or, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't like the way he treats me. I don't like the way she treats me. I, 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 and I don't want to minimize any of those things either. If you're in any of those situations and you feel so alone, you need to come and talk to somebody and get counseling on that. You know, I mean, honestly, so I'm not minimizing it. Here's the problem. It is too easy in our day for Christians to buy into the mentality of the world around us and to say, if you don't like the person because you only go around once in life anyway, dump them and go for somebody else. And Paul says, no. You are a believer. You are a believer. You made a promise, a vow before God Almighty. You stay together but I don't like her. Get help, but you stay together. 
talk to somebody. Don't suffer alone. Because if you do, you'll make bad decisions. It always works that way. And Paul says, here's my advice to you. No, I'm sorry. He doesn't say my advice. Here's my command to you. And it doesn't come from me. It comes from Christ. Matthew 5, Matthew 19. When you come into this relationship, she is your partner. He is your partner. You stay at that. If you have, need help, you get help. But you be committed to the promises that you have made. Isn't that true for all of us? Are there not times in your marriage where you go like, oh, they are such, what's wrong with? I mean, I never have those experiences with Sherry, but you know, but I'm, now we all do, don't we? We all have times where you're like, oh man, both directions. The world has an easy out. The scripture doesn't give us that out. And he says, if you have somebody who has divorced, and it's been for the wrong reason. There's only two options. Remain where you are or reconcile with your mate. That's what it says. That's what the text says. Because you had no good reason to do this, don't complicate it. If you're going to do anything, do this. That makes absolutely no sense Unless the gospel's true. Does it? Unless there's something bigger than this life. But if God is true, and his systems work, and his grace is sufficient, we can move into any of these arenas and find transformation. Paul says two believers can be transformed. They can. And if you're there don't struggle alone. There's plenty of people around here who would be happy to help you. Well, you listen to this and you're saying, okay, okay, okay. People in Corinth are saying, okay, got it, Paul. That's a tough one, but I got it. But I have a really weird, a unique, not weird. It's not weird at all. I have a, I have a very different, people have all kinds of scenarios. But here's another scenario for you, Paul. You know when you came to Corinth, the whole bunch of us were pagan and lost. And you start having this couple saved and that couple saved and this couple saved. And, but you also had that mate saved, but not their mate. And only a single mate saved over here. And before you knew it, in the church, you had believing couples and you had believing mates whose mates, whose spouses were not believers. What do you do with that one? Think about that for a moment. They could have said a lot of things. I've often thought about this. We were preaching through the book of Nehemiah. I don't know, when was that, Tim, James? Two years ago? I don't know, it was a while back. Whatever, good book. Um, <clears throat> you come to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah comes back from the land and finds out that Jews are married to, to, to pagans. What does he tell the Jews to do? He says, divorce them. And I can't help but thinking, you've got some people at Corinth saying, hey, Paul. I'm a Christian now. Christ is the most important thing in my life. My wife's not a believer. I've talked to her. She's not interested. I've talked to my husband. He's not interested. I think I'm going to drop him. You know that Nehemiah stuff. Paul says, you, no, no, no. No, 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 no. That's not how it works at all. 
And, and I've often wondered maybe the people at Corinth were saying, well, you know, in that last chapter, you said that when a guy goes and sleeps with a prostitute, they become one body in some sense. They picture that, and, and that's all inappropriate, and Christ doesn't like that. Isn't that what happens with my mate? If I stay with my lost mate, that Christ doesn't like that because they're not a believer? Paul says, no, because marriage is sacred. And it doesn't matter if he or she is lost. You made a promise. And God looks at that covenant relationship and God says he blesses it. Look at what he says here to encourage these people. It's really, really powerful. Verse 12. To the rest I say, I not the Lord. Now he doesn't mean by that saying, hey, the Lord doesn't agree with me. What he means is the Lord didn't specifically, explicitly deal with this topic when he was speaking here on earth. I'm now breaking into brand new territory with all-out pagans. And we've got this scenario. We've got to deal with it. But Paul's not saying this is my advice. Paul again is saying this is my command. A wife must not separate from her husband. But, oh, that's verse 10, sorry. How about that one? Here at 12, okay. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a, a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Why? Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now that one is a mouthful. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying he's not. Okay, you stay with him. You stay with her. She is not a believer. But you stay with her because the fact that, she, that you're married to her means that she's sanctified. She's saved. Just like your children are saved. And so we can actually convert the world by just marrying. Or something. That would be weird. The reason we don't we know that these people are that, that, that the maid is not actually saved is because if you go down to the last verse, Paul raises this question: How do you know, wife, if you'll ever be actually able to save your mate or husband? How will you ever be able to save your wife? So it's clear that they're not in a saving relationship with Christ. But then what is he saying? This is what he's saying, and this is amazing. In every other relationship, Paul will say later. Um, don't associate with unbelievers. And he doesn't mean by that don't have any relationship with them. We should all have a relationship with unbelievers. What he means is what I don't want you to do is have an intimate fellowship with lost people where, because you can't share with them the most precious thing in your life, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul builds a whole bunch of constructs in his book in 2 Corinthians on this thing, except for marriage. Marriage is different. Because marriage is ordained by God and God prizes it and he wants couples to stay together. He says, you know what I do? 
I put an umbrella of protection around that family. And underneath that umbrella, rather than you having to be driven away from the faith because you're living with him or living with her, I'm going to use you to, to reach out and, and, and by, your, by your love and your deeds primarily, 1 Peter 3, but also appropriately at times by your words. I will use you to potentially woo this man or this woman to myself. They are in a place where I can work. Isn't that true of your children? That's why he mentions the children. Is this a guarantee that my children will grow up and love God and follow him? Nope. But is it far better for a child to grow up in a Christian home than a lost pagan home? Yup. Big time. Because God can work and chooses to work there as they hear the word and they see Christianity lived out. That, God says, under that umbrella, I work. And so if you're here today and you say, I am a single parent, or I'm, I'm not a single parent. Well, well, if you say I'm a single parent, it's true too. God is there at work as you're there with your children. But if you say, I'm, I'm in a marriage, my, 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 my wife is not a believer, I am, and we've got children, and the whole thing kind of concerns me. This text calls you to say, God is with you. Don't run. Love to the glory of God. Live Jesus before them. And don't be surprised what he does. It's not a guarantee. It is not a guarantee. But it is the means that God has often chosen to use to bring people to himself. So the person that is saying, hey, I need to get out of this. God's saying, no, 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 no. You, you, you need to make a commitment to it. But then you say, what happens if my lost mate says, I have had it with you and your Jesus and your Christianity and all that stuff. You either walk away from him or I walk away from you. A couple... Um, I don't know, about a year ago. Has, did anybody ever see the, the movie on Lee Strobel's life? Anybody? Oh, you need to see it. What's it called, honey? Case for, is it just called The Case for Christianity or Christ? Case for Christ. You guys saw, yeah. Was that good or what? That was really good, really good. But I remember why, Case for Christ. Go watch the movie. It's really good. So Strobel was this Chicago Tribune reporter, top of his game, man, sharp, and once you know it, his wife went and became a Christian. This woman just loved, loved her. She came and trusted Christ. And she came back and she was gracious and she was kind. And he did everything he could to convince her how stupid this Christianity stuff is. And logically and the whole thing. But at one point in the movie, I remember him saying, this isn't going to work. I didn't marry you the way you are now. I married you the way you were before Jesus. And you're either going to have to walk away from him or I'm going to walk away from you. Wow. That's hard. Now, in his case, he was going to disprove Christianity and out of that has come a whole series of books, a case for Christianity, a case for Christ, a case, a case, a case, a case. And the man is now a vibrant believer in Jesus Christ, honoring him all around the country. Great, great, great story. Great, incredible story.
But I couldn't help but thinking about that. So what happens if you have that kind of a clash? Look at what he says. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Do do, do you mean it could come to a point where my mate says it's either Jesus or me? And you as a believer have, have to always say, I can never walk from Jesus. Ever. Ever. But I want to embrace you too. No. One or the other. And if at some point she says, that lost, unbelieving mate says to the, her husband, I'm leaving. You will grieve, you will cry, you will weep. Paul says, you can't stop it. God's called you to peace. You can't live in constant turmoil. Well, maybe this and maybe. How do you know? Yeah, but, but if I stayed a little bit longer, maybe they trust Christ. How do you know that they're going to trust Christ if you stay with them longer? You don't know that. You've done everything you can. They shouldn't walk because you're a pain in the neck wife or husband. They should walk because you're a Christian. That's a di- there's a difference. There's a difference. But when you have somebody who's seeking to live out their faith and the mate says, Jesus or me, you always say, Jesus is first and I would love to stay in this marriage with you. And if they say no, let them go. It will be hard. But the God of peace will be with you. You can't live in guilt. But if I would have only... And I, you don't know if this person would ever come to Christ. Forget the guilt. Leave them with God. Wow. That's pretty good advice. It's hard. If you're a typical congregation, I've raised all kinds of questions in your mind. What about? Come talk to us. We would be happy to entertain any of those questions that you might have, okay? Because I, I, I can't speak about everything. Heavens, you know, I'm already going over here. Here's the point. Believing spouses should pervasively pursue sacrificial commitment to either their believing or unbelieving spouses as they rest in the sovereign lordship of Christ. Do you see the hope that gives me? Whatever marriage you're in, Jesus gives us hope. Because at the end of the day, he is Lord over the entire process. I can give myself to the other person lovingly and sacrificially and pervasively in every way imaginable. And know that God is there. And it'll be okay. It won't be easy. But it'll be fine. Do you see? (coughs) I don't know the answer to these questions. But I I, I do want to pose them to you. 
What does this mean for your marriage? Your marriage. Not your brother-in-law's marriage. Not your kid's marriage. Not your parents' marriage. If you're married, what does this mean for your marriage? Where does the Spirit of God want to put his finger and say, let me work there? And if you say, but I don't know how to get, I don't know how to work it through. Who does he want you to talk to? Will you let him do that work? Put his finger on that very area. And then say, God, whatever you have to do, do it, please. And so I I implore you, think hard of your own marriage. And ask yourself, what steps does God want you to take with your life? You say, I'm single. I'm coming to you in two weeks. Okay? No wiggle room. Okay? We get everybody. Okay? But for this week, what does God want to do in your marriage to, to make that a greater reality? Father, so much of Paul's advice would make absolutely no sense if you were not the true and living God, if you had not sent your son, if he had not lived and died and resurrected and ascended on high and is not coming back one day. Lord, none of this would make any sense. But because you're the Lord of all, it changes everything. Would you grant us? Will you illuminate us first? Will your spirit reveal in our hearts where you want to do work. And then, Father, we need your grace and your strength and your help to take that next step, whatever that might be, so that we might begin to experience the beauty and the wonder of your design in marriage. And, Father, we will be eternally grateful for it because of Christ. Amen.